and we might try to figure that out. Or after services, we might go to someone and say, was he talking about you? I want to put you at rest today so there's no confusion, no frustration, and no wondering who I'm talking about. I'm only going to talk about three. So the rest of you, do as you please. And I'm going to announce who we're talking about. I'm going to talk about you and me and Jesus Christ. Everybody else gets off scot-free. We read a scripture last night that came back to my mind this morning. Back in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, and in verse 12. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. That cuts pretty deep. When you've cut through to the marrow, you're at the center of the bones. You can't cut any deeper than that. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God cuts so deeply and is so searching that it will not only read your thoughts, but it will also assess your motivations, your intents, what you intend to do. You cannot get any more personal than that. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, I see that all of us came dressed today. We all have clothes on. And we have hidden our nakedness thankfully, from each other. But we are all absolutely naked before Jesus Christ and God the Father. We might as well all be sitting here today with not a stitch on in terms of their viewpoint. You cannot hide from God. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. What is our profession? We, we profess to be Christians. We profess to be being made in the image of God. If we were all undressed before each other here today, we would be embarrassed, ashamed. Maybe a few would be proud, but very few. 
we would certainly feel exposed, naked, and vulnerable, would we not? What if our inner thoughts, our, motiva our motiv motivations, our motivations, the intents of our hearts, the thoughts we have toward one another, were all as exposed as if we were sitting here absolutely buck naked today? That could be even more embarrassing, couldn't it? Let us hold fast our profession, knowing that we profess to be something, we had better take hold, because he is a great high priest from whom we can hide nothing. We grow up as human beings hiding, do we not? We hide our thoughts, we hide our feelings. We deny them. Sometimes we'll lie to others and ourselves. Some have lied so much that they no longer even know they are lying. Because whatever comes out of their mouth to them has gone through the filter of their emotions, and to them it is true, whether it's true or not. The human heart is deceitful and desperately Wicked. Not a little bad. Desperately wicked. Now, what am I saying? I shouldn't be saying this today. We all examined ourselves before we came to Passover, didn't we? We examined ourselves to see whether we were honest and true and living up to our profession or whether we are hypocrites or not. And having faced that, we took the Passover, hopefully worthily, hopefully in a right, meek, humble spirit. What we went through was a self-assessment. Do we need a second opinion? That's often what we want when we go to the car shop or the dock shop, or wherever we go. We want to be sure we're getting the truth. We want to be sure we're not having our leg pulled. We want to know whether what is recommended is what is needed or not. You see, the problem with self-assessment is we're biased, and we're protective of self and everything that self is. That's why we're so defensive when anyone criticizes us. When anyone questions us in any way, we immediately become defensive, self-justifying, and perhaps even lying. Because we do not always see ourselves as others see us, and we certainly do not always see ourselves as God Almighty and Jesus Christ see us. Now, Jesus Christ sees us as a prospective bride, a prospective bride for himself. His Father sees us 
as prospective brides for his son. Have you ever had a daughter or a son wanting to get married? Did you just say, eh, no matter, whoever he or she likes, it's okay. Did you ever consider the person your child was going to marry, was thinking of marrying? Did you sometimes let out an absolute groan from deep within your soul when they said, this is what I want? Were you highly pleased immediately? And they kept bringing them. Did any of them please you? Were any of them good enough for your kid? After all, it's your kid. It must be a good kid if it's your kid. Well, we are facing seven days of putting sin out of our lives beginning today. Perhaps we should be experts at what we are doing. If we're going to hold fast our profession, we need to know what we are doing. We have to have a clear vision of what needs to be done. Anytime you take on a task, you need to know, how should I go about this? Now, often we lean to our own understanding, don't we? We have this new big box, or one box of three numbered one, two, three, that came from China that says, Some assembly required. Now, so often we'll say, Eh, this looks pretty good. Eh, throw the directions over there. I don't need those. I can do this. I've done it myself many times. Many times I've had to take this back off and that back off and this back off because I skipped step 3A and go back and put this in before I put that back on. You see, I didn't read the instructions. I didn't know clearly what I was doing. And therefore, I made mistakes. Didn't get it put together quite right. Had parts left over. Blah, blah, blah. We've all been there. Well, if we're going to approach these seven days the way God would have us do, we need to have a clear idea with clear instructions of what it is that we need to do. So we'll talk about you and me and Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 6 says, and I'll go back and read it. 1 John 2, verse 6. He that says, he that professes, he who says his profession is Christianity, he that says he abides in him ought himself, not others, himself. He is the one who professes what he's doing. He ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Make the same imprints wherever you go, that he made. Walk only where he would walk. Walk only how he would walk. Do only what he would do. Now let's go to James chapter 4. 
still laying some background. James chapter 4. Where do wars and fightings come from among you? Now, we don't have wars going on, do we? Do we have fighting going on? Yeah, we do. We may not be using guns, bows and arrows, nukes, but we still have animosities, hurt feelings, ruptured relationships, arguments, bad feelings toward one another, offenses that we give and offenses that we take. We still have to be justified, defended, self-justified and defended. We have to come out all right. And we have a need from deep within to come out all right in the eyes of others. Ourselves and others. And in order to preserve and protect self, preserve and protect our psyche, our attitudes, our image we have in our mind of who and what we are, we are willing to destroy the reputation, the happiness, the good day of someone else in order to preserve our peace of mind and our image of self as we see ourselves. So we have wars and fightings among ourselves to protect and preserve self. He explains it. Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members. Our own desires, our own drive to put self first. You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. Now, do we war and fight? No, we don't kill each other. It's talking about killing here. James was writing to the scattered brethren in the ten tribes of Israel, how he addressed this letter. Were those people taking crossbows or bows and arrows or spears and killing one another in the church? I highly doubt it. So what kind of killing is he talking about? Character assassination. Spiritual destruction. Now, we wouldn't think, in most cases, of one of our neighbors around here, in terms of loading up the shotgun and going and settling an argument stabbed me in the back, gossiped about me, impinged upon my reputation in some way. We'll settle this right now. Click, click, lock and load. Here we go. That's not the way we do it, is it? No. If we feel the heat, if we feel the pressure, if we feel gossip, if we feel pushed at, wronged, in any way, we will take whatever steps are necessary to destroy the reputation of the one who is casting a shadow upon us. That's the way human beings do it. 
you adulterers and adulteresses. Not physical adultery, spiritual adultery. Know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The world is full of what? Lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, hate, bitterness, rancor, misuse of every substance on earth, just about. That's the worldly way of thinking. Now, if we still have lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, and all those works of the flesh, then we are still a friend of the world because we act like, think like, look like the world. We have the same emotions as the world. We have to expunge those things from our character, from our conversation, from our conduct. Otherwise, we're friends of the world and we're enemies of God. God will allow no liars, adulterers, thieves, drunks in his kingdom. It says so in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. Won't be there. If you're friends with those things, you will not be in the kingdom of God. Because you're an enemy of God. And God will have no enemies in his kingdom. It's that simple. Do you think, verse 5, that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy. Envy and jealousy are two of the negative emotions that people deal with. We get envious. We get jealous of other people. We have lots of different reasons for doing it. It can be something very simple or something very complicated. It can be their looks. It can be their car. It can be their wife or their husband. It can be their children. It can be their bicycle. It can be the glasses that they wear on their face. It can be their attitude. Those who are in a negative attitude are jealous and envious and spiteful toward those who can smile. Those who can smile look down upon those who are having a frown. Jealousy and envy are so common. Do you think that the Scriptures say in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? No. But he gives more grace. He gives more favor. More forgiveness. Toward whom? He gives more grace. Wherefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists any pride that we have. Any brand, any color, any flavor of pride, God hates. You see, that's why I limited this sermon to you and me and Christ. Because you and I are the only ones who have pride. He doesn't. So if you don't have any pride... This does not apply to you. Now, I'm in. I have all kinds of it. 
fight it every day. It's a daily battle not to be proud. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's a daily battle to be humble. You don't just decide to ask God, give me humility, and he gives you humility, and you have it from now on. You don't just pray to God and say, Father, please take my pride away, and from then on, you have no more pride. We have a daily, hourly, secondly battle to be humble rather than proud. And pride exhibits itself in many, many, many ways. Proud of my country, proud of my state, proud of my county, proud of my town, proud of my house, proud of my car, proud of my wife, proud of my children, proud of my looks, proud of my new suit. That's not me. Proud of any and everything. Proud of my mind. Proud of my understanding. Knowledge does what? Puffs up. These are the days of unleavened bread. If we're proud of knowledge, God resists us. He just does. Intellectual vanity. We think we ought to be promoted, maybe. There used to be a lot of that in the church. We'd polish all kinds of boots to get promoted. Some want to be teachers, despite, well, chapter 3, verse 1. Just across the page. My brothers, be not many teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. So, even though James advises us not to be many teachers, today in the church of God, we have most who want to be teachers. It seems, going against what God himself puts out by one of his apostles. Because we all are proud, I guess, of our own understanding. We want to lean to it. We want everyone else to know what we know. And we get proud of knowledge, which puffs up and is not love. Love does not puff up. Love is not proud. It's humble and meek. You know, all those people for years who tried to climb up top each other to become deacons or elders or ministers or whatever, apostles even, the evangelists fought to be the next apostle. And some have declared themselves that already now. Herbert Armstrong's dead. Now I'm the apostle. Now I'm the leader. Self-proclaimed apostles. Is there any vanity? Any pride? You know, someone who ought to be promoted would not think so. Is that a truism? If you really are in the attitude where you should be promoted to a greater opportunity of service in a formal way, you should be the last to know. You should not be expecting it. I remember how it was when I was a young man and wanted to be used in the work of God, college student. 
And once I was in my junior year, even my sophomore year, because I was particularly bad, the new speaking schedule would come out for the Pasadena greater area. So all the guys in college would run to check to see if they had been given opportunity to lead songs or maybe even give a sermonette. And many expected to be on the list. Many who expected to be on it were never on it. And many who expected to be on it did eventually show up on it. You wanted to know if you could be used. And then when it came time, the end of the school year, for ordinations maybe to occur, or for a forum where it was announced who would go out into the field ministry, everybody was on the pins and needles. Will it be me? Will it be that guy I want to marry? Who will it be? There were great emotional highs and great emotional lows. And then maybe once you had been ordained, came feast time or whatever, you were a deacon, you were an elder, you wondered, who's going to get ordained? Is it going to be me? Am I going to be raised? Now what made you think you ought to be? Is it because you didn't let your right hand know what your left hand was doing? Was it because you served day and night and took no credit for it in your own mind? Is it because you were humble and meek and realized that you had so many weaknesses that you probably shouldn't even be considered? Is that why you expected or anticipated that it might be you? And why you were so disappointed when it wasn't? Now, I'll admit, justice was not always done. Sometimes the boot polishing paid off. Because those that got close to the minister and served him were the ones that got hands laid on them. That was a great injustice. And it's still being done to this day in many, many organizations. hasn't gone away. Why? Because pride and vanity have not gone away. We are not willing to serve selflessly for the most part. We want recognition. And if no one else recognizes it, we want to recognize it ourselves. That's what pride is all about. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, do you want God to resist you? Come on, let's be honest. Do we really want God to be against us and to resist everything we do? Do we want Him to resist our prayers, resist our dreams, resist our hopes? No, we don't. Well, then why do we act like we do? By showing pride. By getting miffed when someone says something about us. By being offended. Why are we offended? It's because of our pride. We are not 
humble. And therefore, we get upset. We resist ourselves. We have a great, deep desire for self-preservation and for self-adulation. Hard to get past it. That's why you're afraid to go to a brother and talk to him about something you perceive to be a problem with him. We're cowards. Part of the reason we're cowards is because we may have tried it a few times and gotten burned. Because those people reacted with pride and vanity and ego, self-justification and self-defense and wouldn't hear us. So in spite of the fact God says, go to your brother, sometimes we're afraid to do it because of the way the brother is. And sometimes we're afraid to do it because we might be proved wrong. Sometimes we're afraid to do it because it might come back on us. There are a lot of reasons that it's hard to do what God says to do. Over the many, many years of dealing with church people and relationships in the church, I've often seen people go to the minister about so-and-so. Why? They don't want to do their own dirty work. They want someone else to do it for them. So they'll come and complain to the minister and try to sick him on that individual. Now the minister should resist and say, speak for yourself, Miles Standish. Do your own dirty work. Do your own laundry. That should be the first question out of Nelson's or Gordon's or my mouth when someone comes to complain about somebody else. Well, have you talked to that person? Somebody said something about me. Did you talk to that person? That should be our automatic response. Besides that, it makes life easier. Don't have to handle it. Let them go do it. It's their problem. Besides that, it's what God says to do. Now, just before they kill each other, perhaps we should step in and try to help solve it. But you really ought to learn self-control, patience, mercy, kindness, gentleness, to even take it on the chin when you don't deserve it. No, I'm not going to talk about lying and stealing and killing and committing adultery today. Most of us, most of the time, are past most of that, except spiritual killing and murder and lying and stealing and adultery and covetousness, which is idolatry. Anytime we put ourselves ahead of God's Word, God's orders, God's instructions, or God's wishes, we have committed idolatry because we have put what we want to do above what God says to do. That makes you an idol. And it means that you are embracing idolatry. People say, well, I don't have a problem with idolatry today. I don't have a little statue on my hearth 
of Buddha or Genghis Khan or George Bush or anybody like that. But it's self-worship and self-idolatry that is our problem. Any time you put your thoughts anywhere but Christ's thoughts, you are committing idolatry, breaking the first commandment. We are instructed, 1 Corinthians 10.5, isn't it, to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ. Every thought. We'll read a little about Christ before we're done today and see what kind of thoughts he had. And we'll see the range of movement that your thoughts are allowed so that you do not commit idolatry. Or adultery. That's a cross between idolatry and adultery. Because any time we put ourselves ahead of God in our thoughts in any way, we're committing adultery with a false god, and that god is self. God hates idolatry. Maybe I should stop now. Is that enough to work on for one week? Well, maybe it should. On the other hand, I doubt if we've gotten it yet. Pretty plain, isn't it, so far? I doubt we're getting it. Not as much as we need to get it. You know, what good does it do? I've been keeping Passover now for 50 years. More than that. What good does it do to keep on coming year after year if I don't change some things? What good does it do to put sin out, quote, unquote, for seven days every spring if I don't actually do it? What if I'm dull of hearing? What if it's just another sermon? Ah, well, yeah, same old thing we heard last year. <coughs> and we never really do anything about it. When will we get tough on ourselves? Am I being mean today? I'm basically just trying to read the words of God to you. And I was very, very kind. I read Hebrews 4.12 to start with. The Word of God is strong and powerful and sharp as any two-edged sword. And it cuts through muscle and tendons and bone right down to the marrow. Maybe it even cuts through the crap. Because that's what a lot of what we are is. Paul said he was a Benjamite. He said he was Pharisee. He said he'd been trained at the feet of Gamaliel, great teacher. He was an Israelite. He was everything 
that you could possibly desire to be as a human being in that society, and he counted it all as dung. Same word I just used, just a little cruder, I guess, what I used. Same stuff. In other words, he was very self-effacing in saying that everything, every title, every education, every dollar, everything he had, he counted as nothing that he might obtain Jesus Christ. So we kind of have to cut through the dung, don't we? So that we can see clearly. And God, and His Word, can cut through all of it. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 5 for a moment. They were glorying over some incest that was going on in the church. You wouldn't think that that would be in the church of God, but it was. Corinth had been a very immoral area, and some of those habits that those people had had carried over. And they thought it was kind of cute, I guess. Verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 5, he says, Your glorying is not good. They were kind of proud of it. That's what you do. You glorify yourself. You brag. God hates braggarts. What is the basis of bragging? Pride. We only brag because we're proud. Know you not that a little leaven... Leavens the whole lump. You girls know it doesn't take much leavening in a bread pan or in a pile of dough to make the whole thing puff up. That's why God uses this analogy this time of the year. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, not puffed up, not proud, humble, meek, gentle, loving, patient, merciful, kind, against these. There is no law. Be a new lump, an unpuffed lump, as you are unleavened. Don't let the bread just be an exercise that you go through. Some of us are very, very meticulous and fastidious about getting every crumb out of every toaster and between every crack in the car seat. We're very, very careful to get out physical leavening, which is only a symbol of the sin that exists in our emotions, our heads, our thoughts, and our actions. It doesn't do a bit of good to clean all the bread and the crumbs out unless we get them out of our head. It doesn't do a bit of good. I mean, it's just a lesson in futility. Why bother to go through the form if we don't do anything about it and what it really means? I dare say people have spent a full seven days before unleavened bread turning their houses and their cars upside down over the decades in the church of God and worked much harder at it than they did at turning their head upside down during the days of unleavened bread. Their feast of unleavened bread came before the days ever began. When they searched out every crumb in their house, did their spring cleaning, spent hours at it, 
And then when the days of unleavened bread actually arrived, <sighs> got the house clean before Sunday. And that's where it stops. Or almost stops. Purge up the old leaven. Be a new lump. As you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. God died so we could get rid of pride, so we could be humble. We compare ourselves among ourselves. Why is it not wise? Because when we compare ourselves among ourselves, we get our minds tuned to each other and how so-and-so is worse than I am. That should be obvious to everyone, shouldn't it? Therefore, I must be okay since I'm at least better than Marie. Oh, I said I'd only talk about you and me. I'm sorry, Marie. And we fail to compare ourselves to Jesus Christ because we fall very, very short of him and bringing every thought into the captivity and the range of thought that is allowable in his mind. He only allows his thoughts to go so far, and that's it. Are we that hard on ourselves? Or do we let our minds wander where they should not go? Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven. Don't carry over the pride, the vanity, the ego, the self that you had yesterday. Don't carry it over to today. We should be different people today than we were yesterday. You should not be today what you were yesterday. You examined yourself. You checked yourself. And you took the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And you and I had better be different today. Or we are still committing idolatry. And we are not fulfilling what Paul told us to do here. Not with old leaven. Neither with the puffed up leaven of malice and wickedness. When we humbled ourselves before each other last night, washing feet, we symbolically got rid of all vanity, of all pride, and we're totally, completely humble in mind. I don't think anyone selected whose feet they would wash. We just lined up and whoever it came to, that's where it was. We don't say, now, we'll have a pecking order back here on the chairs, and we know that so-and-so is friends with so-and-so, so we'll put them together for foot washing, and we know that so-and-so despises so-and-so, so we don't want them washing each other's feet lest a fight break out. 
No, we just line up wherever. Because it is an exercise and a symbolism of total humility, we're willing to wash anyone's feet. Are we willing to wash anyone's feet all year long? That's the attitude. That's the purpose for washing feet. It was introduced by Jesus Christ on Passover evening because the disciples were doing what? Arguing about who was the smartest, the greatest, the prettiest, the handsomest, had the prettiest feet, nicest ears, right shade of hair. I don't know what all they argued about. Caught the biggest fish. Doesn't matter. They were full of pride and vanity. Who was the greatest? They were comparing themselves among themselves. It wasn't wise and, wise and Christ didn't like it a bit. So they washed their feet and said, you better do that to each other. He was the greatest of all. He washed all their feet. Let's not have the leaven of malice and wickedness. And wickedness is a very broad term. It covers a lot of sin. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's be honest with ourselves. And let's not be hypocritical. Let's be sincere. And love each other from the heart. And love God with our whole heart. And treat each other the way we would treat God. How would we treat Jesus Christ? We read about it in John 15, 16, and 17 last night. Did we get the point? Did we get the message? Or do we have to have the foolishness of preaching to drive it in more? Unfortunately, we do. Because it's hard to get. It's not just hard to get. You know, you, you can get it for a short while. But how long does it take before it returns? That's the crying shame. It's easy to be an attentive hearer and to go out and be a really lazy, lousy doer. It's really easy to do that. It's easy to wipe our face and say, I did no harm. I did no sin. It's easy to forget. Pride comes, as the Proverbs say, like the making of water. That's a parable. You figure it out. All right, let's go to Psalm 22. As I said, we'd talk about you and me and Jesus Christ. That's enough about you and me for a little while. Need a break. Let's go back and talk about Christ a while. Psalm 22. He was in trouble. He was being beaten, about to be crucified, about to die. Being beaten worse than any human being had ever been beaten in history. Had gone through more than anyone else. And in fact, 
in Palestine, Israel, outside the streets of Jerusalem, about this time of day, on this day, this is the anniversary of it, he was giving up his last breath for you and me. Right now. Mountain time, not Jerusalem time, but about this time of day, on this day, wherever we are on the earth. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring, my crying, my hurting? Why don't you hear me? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you hear not, and in the night season, and I'm not silent. He had done that all his life, not just that last day. He had lived 33 and one-half years on this earth without ever having one vain thought, never lifting himself up in pride, never defending or justifying himself when he was accused of wrong. Those must have seemed long days and nights. And perhaps he was going in and out of consciousness at this point, hanging there, and it seemed like night and day and night and day as he went through the excruciating pain and sagging because his muscles wouldn't hold him up anymore and almost suffocating. It isn't fun not to be able to get air, is it? We've all experienced it. Not any fun at all. But you are holy. He was in the greatest pain, suffering, and the direst straits that a human being can possibly be in. And after stating that to God, he didn't have an attitude about God. Sometimes we get an attitude about God. Sometimes we blame him for what we are. How much selfishness, vanity, ego, or even self-loathing, which is pride and vanity in itself, can we have to blame God? He was suffering the worst straits a human being could suffer. And he says, but you are holy, O you that inhabit the praises of Israel. How upside down in a well do you and I need to get? before we get discouraged and depressed and quit looking to God and feel self-pity. 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 Self-pity is vanity. It is ego. I deserve things to be better than what they are. That is the attitude behind self-pity. I deserve better. Do you? Haven't you sinned and come short of the glory of God? If you have, you deserve not better, but worse. Because the penalty of sin is death. But we somehow convince ourselves we deserve better than what we are receiving. Job kind of went through that, didn't he? Why me, Lord? I got boils all over me. 
Kids are all dead. My wife's cussing me. My sheep and cattle, camels are all gone. Got nothing to eat. Now my friends are chewing on me. I deserve better. I'm better than that. When it finally went through all that charade, God began to explain to him who he was, and Job's opinion of himself began to shrink. And he became humble and meek and said, Now I see you, God. You are God. I'm just Job. I don't deserve any better than what I've had. Once he got his attitude straight, what happened? God gave him daughters, cattle, camels, everything a man could want. Job had. It was all about attitude. Sometimes we simply have to change our attitude. Easier said than done. God is after an attitude of heart and mind. That's all he wants. That's why he discerns your thoughts and the intents of your heart. You can pull the wool over people's eyes consistently and constantly. You can fool many of the people much of the time. You can't ever fool God. He knows what your attitude really is. And haven't we learned by now that we don't even know often what our real attitude is? Because we hide from ourselves, don't we? We're not willing to admit what our real motivations are, what our intents are. We lie to ourselves to cover our lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy to make ourselves look good. You are holy, O you that inhabit the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you did deliver them. What did he do? He reviewed the course of history and what God did for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what God did for Moses and Miriam, what God did for David. He reviewed in his mind all the things that God had done to deliver those who would be faithful to him. That gave him courage gave him faith, gave him strength and power to face what he was facing. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. Didn't make any difference what people said about him. Didn't make any difference what they did to him. Didn't make any difference how important they appeared. He wasn't envious. He wasn't jealous. He just said, I'm the worm in this apple. I'm it. Now, he could have had a different attitude. He could have said, don't you people know who I am? I'm God. I'm Jesus Christ. Treat me right. Didn't do it, did he? I'm the worm. 
Are you beginning to see the range of thought that we are allowed? Fellow maggots? When we are under stress and duress and attack, we should say, I'm the worm. Not who do you think you are criticizing me. I'm a worm and a reproach of men and despise of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, we heard this sung last night. He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. They mocked him. They were sarcastic. I trusted in God. Let him deliver him. Look at the fool up there on that stake. Do we make him out to be a fool by the way we treat his sacrifice? Ouch. Let's move on. Verse 9, But you are he that took me out of the womb. You did make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. He was going over his childhood. He was thinking about it in terms of God and how God had brought him from childhood to maturity and now to a despicable death of shame. I was cast upon you from the womb. You are my God from my mother's belly. You're the only one I can trust from the time I was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were his thoughts. I trust you with everything that I am. What do we take to ourselves? Do we trust God with our lives? Will we trust Him with our families and our children? Do we trust Him with our wealth? Do we trust Him with our health? Christ's health was certainly at stake here. So was His wealth. They'd taken His fine clothes off Him and auctioning them off at the foot of the stake. Oh, we'll trust God as long as things are going good. We'll trust God that we get cancer. We'll trust God that we have heart problems. We'll trust God with our health as long as we only have a cold. We'll get anointed and wait three days if we're not healed and we'll do something different. Christ trusted Him all the way. From the womb to his dying breath. His life was in the hands of his Father in heaven. He was willing to die? Are we? Do we put ourselves ahead of God's Word when it comes to medical science and we will entrust our lives to them rather than Almighty God whom we profess to worship with all our hearts? It's becoming popular in God's church today to go to the doctors for any and everything because we do not have faith in God and are not willing to trust Him with our health and our lives. Asa died because he went to the doctors being diseased in his feet. Do you 
trust Almighty God and Jesus Christ. The only reason he had to be beaten and the flesh shredded off his body was that we might be healed. That's the only reason. Otherwise, they could have decapitated him just like that, and it would have all been over. All the beating, all the bloodletting, all the muscle tearing, so you and I might be healed. We say we worship God. We say we love God. Are we willing to entrust our health, our lives to Him? Are we afraid to die? A lot of people in the church today and many of the churches condone it and go along with it. But just because people believe something doesn't make it right. What does God's Word say is all that matters. Because if we take measures apart from what God gives us and within the range of thought that He allows, we are committing idolatry and we are full of self and pride and God resists the proud. Is it any wonder we aren't healed? Did you know that Jesus Christ himself could not perform miracles in his hometown. Jesus, the Messiah, could only heal a few sick folk in his own town because they did not believe that little bastard from Nazareth could be who he was. I remember him. I remember when Mary got pregnant. I know they weren't married. Blah, 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 blah. Scurrilous. Lies. Untrue. But it was their attitude. They'd seen him grow up. They didn't believe. And even God himself cannot perform miracles if we don't believe. The prayer of faith will heal the sick. Somehow, some way, we have to come to have that kind of faith. We aren't there yet. We must come to that point. Jesus Christ gives us a very limited range of thought in Psalm 22. Verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round, probably demons. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. They were there to destroy him, to ravage him, to tear him to pieces, the people and the demons. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. None of his bones were broken. But the muscle, the sinew, tendons had been torn and ripped to the place that his bones were out of joint. Couldn't hold together anymore. Wasn't enough muscle there to do it. 
My heart is like wax, not firm, not strong, not beating, but just about to stop, turning weak, soft, in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a dry piece of pottery. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you have brought me to the dust of death. About as low as you can get. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Like the pit bulls got turned loose. That happened in California, I think, last week. A couple of pit bulls went out. No, it was in Salt Lake City. Started attacking children. Bit several of them severely. What if you had a pack of pit bulls tearing at you? That's the way he felt. I may tell all my bones. He could look down, the flesh stripped off, and see his bones. All that we might be healed. Do we believe in him? We profess to. We have a great high priest. Do we believe him? Once we seek him with our whole heart, we'll find him. When we actually, literally believe him, he will hear us. What will it take? They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. They've taken everything I have. They're dividing my clothes up. I'm here, naked, before all mankind. Shame, despised, mocked. I wasn't really too far off when I began this. What if we were all naked here? Jesus was. He felt it. Be not you far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste you to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for you have heard me from the horns of the unicorns, from creation. I will declare your name to my, to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise you. That was his attitude. It was all for us. He would praise Almighty God when a man was at, when he was at his wit's end, his heart's end, his end. He would praise God with all his being. You that fear the Lord, praise Him. All you, the seed of Jacob, glorify Him and fear Him. All you, the seed of Israel. For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has He hid His face from Him. But when He cried to Him, He heard. When we are in trouble, He is our great high priest, who has gone through more than we have ever even imagined to go through, and he has a heart and a feeling for us. He wants to help us. It says in Lamentations, he doesn't want to do this to the church, but he has to for our good. It hurts him literally worse than it hurts us. Let's go to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. 
Isaiah 52 is a culmination of a line of thoughts about how God would begin to deliver in the desert and the wilderness, and He would send those who would bring good tidings to Zion, and how we should wake up, stresses it several times through 48, 49, 50, 51. And He tells us, beginning of chapter 52, to wake up, third warning, and put on our beautiful garments, our white conduct, our white thinking, our godly thinking, and not let the world walk over us anymore. Same thing James was saying. If you love the world, you love the things of the world, you're the enemy of God. So he tells us here in different words, be clean, be pure, be holy. Shake yourself. Sit up. Don't be walked on anymore. Don't let the world walk on you anymore. He tells us, to get away from the unclean in verse 11. Touch no unclean thing. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. Be pure. Be like Jesus Christ. Don't be tainted. Don't be dirty. Don't be sullied or spotted by the world. Pure religion and undefiled is this, not to be spotted by the world and to visit the widow and the orphan. Or to take care of the widow. I don't think he mentions the orphan there. Verse 13, from telling us this, and the context is for right now. This is the condition we're in right now, being walked on by the world. He says, get out of it. Don't let it happen. Don't be spotted by the world. Verse 13, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He goes into a context here about Jesus Christ. Tells us what to do, and then he goes into a context about him. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. God would raise him to the highest position available in the universe, at the right hand of our Father, for what he would do. He would be wise. He would be prudent. He would be smart. He would be strong. He would be everything that he ought to be. As many were astonished at you, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. It was astonishing. It was incredible to see what he was going through for you and me. His visage, his face, was so marred more than any man. No one had ever had their face torn up as badly as Jesus Christ's face. He wasn't really worried, will I scar? Will my beauty be destroyed? No. It was astonishing to look at how his face had been savaged. His form more than the sons of men. His whole body had been raked over the coals, split with a cat of nine tails, whipped. The flesh came off in wads and his bones could be seen. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouths at him. He's going to come back. Vengeance is his. What was done to him, he is going to unleash on this world very, very soon. Do you want to escape 
that. Do you want to look like he looked before this is over? I'll guarantee you, unless you come to think like he thinks and get rid of pride, vanity, jealousy, envy, greed, taking offense and giving offense, it will happen because he's bringing it on the whole world. They must learn that you don't do the things they do. And you and I don't do and allow ourselves to think the things we think. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouths at him. He'll shut them up. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard they'll have to have a look at. They'll have to consider. They don't think it can come on them, but it's going to. We have been mollycoddled in this nation to the point we think it can't happen here. It has already started to happen here, and it will get worse. Who has believed our report? You believe what I just said? It's coming. Who believes it? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Who can see? Who will take notice? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. Israel was pretty dry, pretty dried up when Christ came into existence on this earth. He had no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. When... The Father determined the looks of Jesus Christ as he was planted in the womb of Mary. It was decided ahead of time he would be an ugly duckling. He was not handsome. He was not beautiful. He was not someone that you would want to look at or that would turn your head as he went by because of his looks. That was done on purpose. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows. We all like to be liked, don't we? Isn't that one of the proud reasons we put our best foot forward is so that we can be liked? Sometimes we even want our children to like us, and we don't discipline them properly because we're afraid they won't like us, or we're afraid we'll lose them. They need to respect us a lot more and they need to be worried, then we need to be worried about whether they like us or not. But we get it confused because we want to be liked. And if you give in in order to be liked, you will eventually be despised. If you make them respect you, that turns into love. Do we love Jesus Christ? Do we respect what he did for us? Do we take it lightly sometimes in the attitudes we allow ourselves to be in, the grudges we hold against each other, the putting of our hands, our lives, our wealth, our health in hands other than his? Do we despise any of his words because of our attitudes? 
and keep only those things which appeal to us. And if we have an attitude about something, we're not willing to do it. Attitude is the basis of most of our disagreement with God. It's all about attitude. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed, despised and we esteemed him not. What do you mean we didn't esteem him? What do you mean he was despised and we allowed it? We did. I did. You did. We do. We despise him because we do not take his sacrifice seriously enough. And we do not change and become like him. We do not respect him and love him enough. Because love is not an emotion. Love is the keeping of his words. This is the love of God that you keep his commandments. He defines love. Sin is the breaking of His commandments. Sin is defined by breaking His commandments. What is the summary of His commandments? That we love Him with all our heart. We love each other as He loved us. That's the summary of the Ten Commandments. You can say you love Him, but if you keep not His commandments, you are a liar. The truth. It's not in you. Emotion of love can follow obedience, but emotion is not love. Love is how we treat each other. <coughs> love is lack of pride. Yeah, we have despised and rejected him. We think in pride, not in humility. <coughs> Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, not his own. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He says he's our healer, Psalm 103. Do we really believe him? You know, we take other measures and other methods. Why? Because we do not believe him. That's why. If we really believed him, and it happened, we wouldn't take other measures that are far more painful. Anointing with oil does not hurt. I've never had anybody draw back and say, Oh, don't do that. That hurt my head. Doesn't hurt at all. Doesn't disrupt your bodily functions like drugs do. Doesn't cut and hurt like knives and stitches do. Doesn't hurt at all. There's just one catch. You've got to believe it works. That's all it takes. You've got to believe it works. If you don't believe it works, it won't work. And since we don't believe it works, we go elsewhere. And we despise his stripes. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to a different way, our own way, whatever way, not his way. 
And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All our sins. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. How much oppression, how much affliction, how much criticism does it take before you and I open our mouths? How much do we have to be gossiped about, stabbed in the back, belittled, talked about, before we open our mouth? We are to walk as Jesus Christ walked. That's it. Our range of emotion, our range of conversation, our range of thought stops there. That's all we're allowed, is to be like him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He did not justify. He did not defend. He did not say, don't treat me that way. Don't talk about me. Don't malign me. Don't gossip about me. He opened not his mouth. This is about you and me and Jesus today. We've got to be like him. He took it. He was not offended. I won't have time to turn there, but Psalm 119, 165 says, if we have the law of God, nothing will offend us. I'm not offended. You're not offending me. I'm just mad. I'm not offended. I'm angry. They're all synonyms. Come on. We can say we're not offended when we are. We can call it something else. Call a dog a cat, still a dog. He opened not his mouth. He was taken away to prison and to judgment. And who shall declare his generation? He had no children. He was killed in the prime of life. He was not allowed to marry and have children. Can't talk about his generation. For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Didn't matter. They all go to the same place. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Make a difference whether you're a king or a pauper. Dead's dead. And with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, no lie, no hypocrisy, no deceit. Human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. He had taken on the mind of Almighty God and allowed no deceit. He did not self-deceive himself, nor did he deceive anyone else. Yet it pleased the Eternal to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Why did God take pleasure in this horrible thing that happened to Jesus? Because he so loved human beings that he gave his only begotten Son that we may not perish but have everlasting life. That's why. 
It pleased God to allow this to happen for you and me. What are we willing to do for him? He wants to marry us. He wants us to be his bride. He wants to be so happy and present his bride to his father and say, Father, isn't she beautiful? Look how she's dressed in these fine, righteous, white clothes. She's mine, woman. My bride, Dad. Look at her. This is my bride in whom I am well pleased. Not proud. Well pleased. That's why it pleased God to bruise him so we could be standing before the throne of God being married to Jesus Christ. If you're going to marry him, you better look a lot like him. If he's going to be happy to present you to his father, better be that kind of bride. He has put him to grief. When you shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's all going to turn good, all this that he went through. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. He had the right knowledge. He had the right conduct. He lived it. And he's going to share it with us. He'll justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He despised the shame, as it says in Hebrews. And went through that for you and me. And now he's going to share his holy, joyous, happy life with us forever. After what you and I did to him. This is about relationships. This is about you and me stripping the flesh off our husband-to-be. Having wrong attitudes. Despising one another who are made in the image of God. Offending one another and being offended. I don't have time today to go to all those scriptures. I've got them written down here. Maybe we'll get to them sometime. But then maybe we don't need them. Do we need to go back and read where Paul said, Don't even meet, eat meat if it will offend your brother. Be a vegetarian if it would bother your brother. That's a big step, isn't it? How many of you are willing to give up meat if it bothered your next door neighbor? Don't offend one little one. Otherwise, you might as well have a millstone tied around your neck and be cast into the sea. How careful are we not to offend one another? How easily do we open our mouths and talk about one another? Brethren, I think we have in this little group, a lot of love for one another. I see people out here on this piece of property every day working four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen, sixteen hours to do things for other people. Not just hugs, not just hi, how are you. Whatever they're doing, 
They'll drop what they're doing and come help you if you need help. By the dozens. I see it every day, all day long, where people are willing to serve and help one another. That is what love is all about. It's not be you warmed and filled and hugged. If we're sacrificing for one another, the hugs will come in their time, in their place, in their way. But what it's about is truly helping one another, keeping the commandments of God so that we respect and love one another, and that precludes vanity, envy, jealousy, and all those negative emotions in our hearts and minds, doesn't it? Do we have enough of the love of God? No, we don't keep His commandments perfectly. Our relationships are not perfect. But we got seven days here. Well, the first one's nearly gone. But maybe we had some time today to think about it a bit. We need to make some attitude adjustments. Because the range of thought that Jesus Christ has is much narrower than that which we permit ourselves. What's going to be his fate? He's already back in glory, and he's going to divide his inheritance with us. I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Somebody transgresses against us, we get offended very easily. They did everything possible that you could do to a human being, to our Savior, and he opened not his mouth. He was not angry. He was not mad. He was not, in that sense, hurt. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. That's as broad as you and I can afford to think. 